got that blast beats and bikes down at McAllister College. I'm putting off of my city like she puts on nail polish. No way, go ahead. They on their wallets. They want it. They drink like alcoholics. Throwing in a bolus. I come through on the stage. No, I misbehave. I'm coming out the cage. Got a cover like rage. And if they want to come back, then they know that they heard it. Because when I got that energy, I'm going to disperse it. We coming at you. We coming at you. Chilling with my dogs, they call it a dog catcher. We coming at you. We coming at you. Chilling with my dogs, they call it a dog catcher. Last beats and bikes, say what they like. I'm out best. No wait, just like rifle, they grab the rifle, so insightful, coming here collected. Cause they didn't know they bred farm and throw an interception. If they want to come with it, I spin it, I get specific, I get prolific. They are eclipsing, they miss it, I'm double fisting, I christen, I'm the given. It's God given, I'm coming to spit the sickness. We coming at ya, we coming at ya. Chilling with my dogs and calling a dog catcher. We coming at ya. We coming at ya. Chilling with my dogs and calling a dog catcher. Is this metal enough for the show yet, Jay? Jay, we're coming at ya. Chilling with my dogs and calling the dog catcher. We coming at ya. We coming at ya. Chilling with my dogs and calling the dog catcher. That was Doug Catcher by Vibe Corp. You are listening to Blast Beats and Bicycles here at 91.7 FM, McAllister College Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. Got a great show ahead of us today. We've got two of the key members of Paradox, John Eller, uh, one of the founders, and Ben Craig, the bass player. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Great to have you here. And uh, we've got lots of fun things to talk about. Um, First of all, for those folks who don't know the 80s metal scene, uh, you guys were pretty regular players around town. Um, do you remember your first like club gig, John, as Paradox? Um, yeah, we opened for Dare Force on their fifth anniversary at oh uh, Boyd's on the River. Oh, the premier nightclub in Minneapolis. And I remember thinking, <laughs> we are on our way. That, ah, oh, that was no pun intended. I think they, I think that's where they got the title because we really did think that. You know, back in 1980, there was no roadmap. It just was right. not a roadmap to doing what we did. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it seemed like it was just such an organic time for for music. I mean, especially heavy music. There was so much going on. Do you remember, John? Kind of your first professional gig. Was that your first, first, first professional? professional gig? That was probably it. I mean, I. I Played at little little high school mixers and odds and ends and yeah. parties, but like as as a thing where we're paid and there's a booking agent and 
all that. That was probably it. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that would have been my first paying gig yeah. too, the first professional. And I, you know, I was I was still underage. I think Ben, you were just barely of age. You were, yeah. you were like I was 20. I think I might have just turned 20. He was the legal guardian. You were all, <laughs> my dad would go to the, a lot of the early gigs because we needed we needed a guardian. And he, I think he enjoyed being our. I think so too. Brody guy, but yeah, we'd play like a hotel in Wilmer, Minnesota, and your dad would come with. Yeah. <laughs> He'd have to because they were you know they were all teenagers, and I wasn't even 21. How did you guys get started in music as as kids? I mean, what was your sort of start with music? Um, I, I was musical from from the word go. I, I, I have memories of my mom teaching me little piano ditties at two. Wow! And, and uh, I remember there was a little uh, upright piano on on the back porch that was painted with house paint, bright hmm. blue. And uh, I would sit and bang at that. And then a little later on, they got a real piano, and I started piano lessons. When I was about eight, and then I heard Richie Blackmore and Joe Perry and all that, and it was then it was a whole new life changing, no, whole new facet to my musical interest. And I took some I, I, actually in, in grade school. I remember they they had a, a guitar teaching program. The whole class they'd come in and they had guitars for everyone to play. I was kicked out because I was too chatty. The teachers <laughs> like, John, you, you are talking way too much. We need, we're going to have to leave the room. And I go, what? Okay. <laughs> ben, how did you get started in music? You know, I, I've always liked music since I saw, like, Beatle cartoons as a kid when my older brother would watch them. Yeah. The Partridge family and the idea of traveling around on a bus with a bunch of people always fascinated me. My parents had a little country band upstairs, and all I hear is the bass downstairs. No kidding. And we'd listen to Led Zeppelin records, and I saw Zeppelin in 77, and I always thought that was my ticket out, you know. Yeah. It was just getting into, getting into a band and traveling mm-hmm. would be the way to see the world. And when did you pick up the bass for the first time? Well, after taking guitar lessons as a kid and realizing that I really wanted to be out playing more than sitting practicing, mm-hmm. I knew that. Mm-hmm. My mom's friend who played bass in the country band gave me a bass. Wow. Montgomery Wards. No started, kidding. Started just playing it. and Every, Everybody plays guitar. Everybody Fine. plays right. guitar. <laughs> and it was amazing. You know, I took, I learned three chords and joined a band. It was literally like that, you know. <laughs> That's fantastic. And so was, was Paradox your first band? Uh, no, I band? got kicked out of my first band. It was a high school band. <laughs> and they kicked me out. And so I was looking for a band. And that's when I ran into somebody at Vavro Music whose, whose band was looking for a bass player. And that's kind of how things started mm-hmm. back in the word of mouth days. Avro Music, downtown, downtown St. Paul. Yeah, when when St. Paul was still kind of a small town, right? right? Yeah. When it had a loop. <laughs> yes. It had a loop. People yes. would drive around the loop. It was so 50s. My brother had a 67 GPO, and we, oh, he, he would take me, and we'd drive around the loop. Right. That was a big thing to do. It was yeah. Sort of a throwback to the 50s days, I think. Kind of. I bet, kind yeah. John, what was it? Do you remember your first time performing any kind of music in public? Um, You know what? I, I did... Um, it might have been like ninth grade. I did uh, Elton John's funeral for a friend and love lies bleeding at a, at a pep assembly, mm-hmm. and it was just me playing piano. I, di- I didn't sing yet. I was I just played piano. Hmm. And a friend stand there, and I had the sheet music, yep. and I followed. And he stood there and turned the turned pages, pages for you, yep. for me, and I was just scared out of my mind. And I ended, <laughs> and the auditorium just erupted in cheers, <laughs> and I freaked out and just ran out of the room. Oh my gosh. And one and one of the one of the one of the my older uh, classmates dragged me back out on the stage and made sure that <laughs> I could see what was happening. And that was probably when the bug bit me a little bit. But yeah, kind of freaked me out. But that that was probably one of my first things performing. Well, so obviously it only took you a couple of years to get from that shy kid who couldn't handle the applause of the audience to being the front man of a pretty popular local metal band. Yeah, I, I mean, I remember the first Paradox gig in that church basement, and I just remember right before we started it, I had this kind of, not hyperventilating exactly, but this exhilaration. Um, and by the middle of the first song, I was like, oh, okay, I get it. And I, I've never... Never really had any problems. You hate to really use a word like magic, but that was a that was a very special gig. We we played. We were a hit to ourselves and to everybody there, and it never really lost momentum. But wow. our revolving door of guitar players, I think, in the beginning, <laughs> that to me was one of the reasons it took so long to get to get any kind of record out. Anymore. Yeah, right. We were together four years before we had a stable lineup, mm-hmm. developing songs and what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. Yep. Right. Figuring out music life in the Twin Cities. Right. Yeah. 
And I'm sure that was that was tricky like, to just sort of figure out, well, how do you get gigs and where do you get chances to play, right? Yeah. Uh, luckily, we had a guy step in real early on. Yeah, they wanted to book us because older we guy. He was an older guy to us. He was like twenty six. He was twenty six. <laughs> wow! And just out of the Marines, and he sold. Cars. How can you trust a guy that old? Right? He sold cars, <laughs> and yeah, he started booking shows, and we were we were just eager to play. I think I think we were just eager to play live. Yeah, we were in the basement for six months working on stuff for that one show at P- CSPS Hall. We worked for. I think we worked for three no, months. The, the, that show. the church basement. Yeah, was the first. Yeah. Oh, right, the church uh, basement. Saint yeah. Saint Stans. Saint Stans. Saint Stans over in the West End. Oh, wow. Off of Western and West Seven. But we worked for months on the material for that. Yep. It took me a long time to learn songs back then. Did you have any originals in that sh- that first show? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, probably not too many, but there I, I, there were probably four or five, yeah. something like that. Modern Man for sure. Modern yeah. Man would have been, I think, the first one we learned. That was probably. before Wicked Rock and Roll. Yeah, way before. And yeah. Surrealist. And which, Surrealist. Those, that's that's the first song I ever wrote. Right. With right. Joe Garcia, he wrote Surrealist and Modern Man. We would have definitely done those two at the I first was show. Fifteen. That was my first little song. Wow. I don't think we're gonna play that one today, but that's uh, yeah, that would have been my first one. Well, you mentioned Wicked Rock and Roll, and I think you know there are a lot of people around who probably haven't heard uh, Paradox because it's been a while since you guys have played it. Around. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so that one was. Uh, I, I didn't write the words for, for most of the paradox stuff. It was Joe Garcia who mm-hmm. wrote all the words, and he was kind of a artsy, yeah, little left of the dial guy. He was into like Patti Smith and and Rambo and, and writing kind of. Hmm. Yeah, for our scene, he was almost like a little Andy Warhol to me. That kind of yeah. interesting. You know, he was yeah. that kind of guy, very tastemakery. Yeah. So, so he came at me with with the lyrics to Wicked Rock and Roll, and I remember thinking. This is this is kind of cheesy, really. And he said, "No, no, you guys need a rock and roll anthem. You yeah, need an anthem. You gotta, absolutely. It's got to be simple. That's the point. It's got to be. You got to have. You got to chant that." And I, I thought, "Oh, okay." And uh, and yeah. so so it is still a little cheesy. It is kind of a. <laughs> Anthem but you know what? Every time I every time I put it on, I want to put my fist in the air. <laughs> <laughs> my mission has been accomplished. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's give people a chance to listen to that. This is uh, Paradox with Wicked Rock and Roll. Show the show was. We can run. 
That was Paradox with Wicked Rock and Roll. You are listening to Blast Beats and Bicycles here at 91.7 FM, McAllister College Radio, WMCN in St. Paul, Minnesota. And we have John and Ben from Paradox in the studio with us. Um, Anybody who's familiar with the uh, British wave of the new wave of British heavy metal will recognize some of the sounds that are coming out of that. We'll talk a little bit about some of your influences, John, songwriting wise. Uh, yeah, you, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. It was definitely, definitely that. I was, I was telling you on the break, and I'll tell you again that I, I had gone into Northern Lights on University in Midway and saw the first Iron Maiden album on the, in the bin, and it was it was an import. They didn't even have a U.S. contract, and I bought it purely on the album art. I kind of a Universal Monsters geek, and <laughs> was completely smitten by that album cover. So before we knew he was called Eddie or any of that, it was just like, look at the monster. Oh, my God, i got to buy this. <laughs> and, and I turned out I loved it. And we ended up at our, our first paradox. So we, we, we kind of learned some of the songs from the album just as, you know, uh, to, to get our riffs and, and mm-hmm. things going. So we did, we did Transylvania, Transylvania yeah, and Run, Running Free yeah. and nice. Tomorrow. Running Free is one of my favorite songs. Yeah. That and Run to the Hills are probably See, my now, two. See, to, to me, Iron Maiden... Existed for two albums. I just I never dug Bruce Dickinson's. I was so into Paul Diano's voice, and when Bruce Dickinson took the helm, I was like, oh. Yeah. I liked the the more guttural, almost punk rocky approach. You can hear Uh, some Diano in your voice in that song in particular. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So so certainly the 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 the, as you said the new wave of British heavy metal we were listening to. Yeah, me me and my little buddies, we were all listening to Saxon and Mm -hmm. that first Def Leppard album. Yep. It's very late 70s, like 79 kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. 79, 80, 78. Yeah, really, that was when it started to really become heavy metal. I mean, you had the Deep Purples and you had the Sabbaths and all that kind of stuff, and even Priest to a certain degree. But really, when you got into, the, like you said, that first Def Leppard record and that uh, that first uh, Iron Maiden record really started that shift. I was hugely into, at that time, I was hugely into UFO, who... Mm. I mean, I, they, I guess they sort of ended up in that category somehow, but they, they were never really heavy metal. No. It was not, that was not a fair moniker. Yeah, they were very hard blues in a weird way. Yeah. Those guys. Kind of like Rainbow in a way. I mean, Rainbow was sort of heavy metal, but not really. I mean, I... Yeah, I liked Rainbow, too. I liked Richie Blackmore. Yeah. Back yeah. in the day. Gotta love Richie. Yeah. Back in the day, you know. Yeah. I love Michael Shanker. I love UFO is actually coming to town. I saw, I think they're playing the Medina Who's in the band? I don't know. Phil Mogg in the yeah, band? Michael Shanker's not in the band. No, there. Michael Shanker hasn't been in there for years. Right. But yeah. yeah. You know, power to him, I say. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, who else, as you were as you were doing your songwriting, who, what are some of the other bands? I mean, were you looking to other bands as inspirations from, from the U.S., or were there Twin Cities bands that you guys kind of were into that you wanted to emulate? Well, I, <clears throat> I certainly was a huge Aerosmith fan from about 13 years old on and, and I'm sure that I we did a ton of Aerosmith covers mm-hmm. so I'm sure that influenced the stuff we did I remember the first bar band I saw that made me really want to be a bass player in a band was Dare Force though yeah I saw Dare Force on stage like you know what I can do that that's great that's, and it was before I met John but that's I, Oh, yeah, I'd been kicked out of my high so school. You were, you were old enough to get into bars. Yeah, I was eighteen. See, <laughs> well, right, the the the, the drinking age, age hadn't 18, changed yet then. The drinking age was eighteen. Yeah, and I was eighteen, mm-hmm. and I was at a bar drinking with my brother, home from the navy, and I signed Air Force, <laughs> and it's like, you know what, I could do that. I'd been kicked out of my high school band already. <laughs> they were playing Leonard Skinner, and it's like, oh, <laughs> it's like, you know what, no, this is this is what I, and I think I heard him do a UFO song. So did you have the full, like, Skinnered beard and stuff like that, too, at no, that time? No, I had a mustache, but it was the 70s, and everybody had a you mustache. You know what? And when Ben first joined the band, he had this mustache, and, and we would tell him, dude, you got to lose the mustache. And he's like, I don't, don't want to lose the mustache. <laughs> he was really adamant about not because Because I'm, I'm, I'm not... I'm not. I'm just kind of skinny, and I have kind of kind of a girlish. I, I don't. I don't want. I don't because dudes will call me a girl because I got long hair. And <laughs> yeah. So we, what we did, girlish, and, and we're like, dude. You, and and he, Ben thinks I'm kidding, but I swear to God, after a show once, some guy came up and said, "Yeah, you guys are pretty good, but 
you got to tell that bass player to shave that mustache. <laughs> Hippie I, mustache. And I, I told Ben that, and he didn't believe me. Yeah, that was kidding. Me a hard time. It was absolutely true. So I think we fi- we finally got under his skin. We're at, we're at a rehearsal. We had fake mustaches that, that we all put on like before a song started. <laughs> well, and, I, and there were it was it was somewhere. I think it might even been at rehearsal or something, right? Yeah. And you guys were all like somebody had their head in the refrigerator. Somebody was looking <laughs> in the cupboard. Somebody had their head in the pantry. And I kind of walked in, and all at once they all turned around and had these fake mustaches on. <laughs> <laughs> I think I shaved it off later that day, and it was Tommy Alcides who actually showed me how to shave a mustache. Oh my god! I never shaved it. I, wow! I think when it grew in at sixteen, I just never shaved it. So it was one of those kind of mustaches. <laughs> yeah, a little cookie duster. Yeah, right? exactly right. <laughs> Yeah, well, so I can I can relate. You know, we were we were. Uh, I remember one one summer for Spring Fest or not Spring Fest for uh, Grand Old Day. I was sitting in a row right up here on the corner of Grand and Snelling, and I had really long hair at the time. And I was sitting next to like three other women, and the Vulcans were coming down the the street. Right? You know how they used to have They're the face paint. Right? Yeah. They did. They came around from behind and got each one of the women, and they got to me. And the guy was like, "Oh, it's a dude." <laughs> <laughs> See, so now I can, that, and today that would be diversely right, accepting. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that was uh, that was a pretty funny. Uh, the Vulcans. Yeah, I don't think they can get away with that stuff anymore. Yeah, that's a little, uh, little, little yeah. creepy. Yeah. Another yeah. another era of Saint Paul history, right? Yeah. Well, there you go. Right, <laughs> everything evolves. Thankfully. Indeed, or, indeed. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> You'd like to think that. Well, you know, in in that spirit, maybe we should actually listen to "Ain't It Strange" right now. Sure. How does that sound? Do you want to give us a little background on this song, John? To what, talk a little bit about the the writing for oh, "Ain't It Strange." Um, well, that was one that that uh, again, Joe Garcia wrote the words, and we, we we were kind of a he he fancied us being like an Elton John, Bernie Taupin, where he he was not a musician at all. Okay. Um, and so he would just give me lyrics, and that this is one of them, and and. I know it, he initially handed it to me, and it was called "Isn't It Strange," and I said, "Isn't it strange?" I said, "That's that's kind of hard to, to sell." I mean, that, it's just it's, it's hard to sing. It's hard to sing. It's, it's, yeah. it's just kind of limp <laughs> syllables. Why, it I, sounds I, like it belongs in a Broadway yeah. show, right? Yeah, isn't it strange? Yeah. <laughs> I think I remember that was one of the first songs that we really worked on a piece of the song. We yeah. talked about yeah. that earlier. Just where we there was one section of the song where how are we going to take it from the beginning part to the end. And John came up with this riff, and he's, I don't know if you remember where it came from, but it was a very difficult riff. Hmm. You probably hear it in the song, but we sure. all nailed it live every time, and it was really the highlight of playing all the songs for me was that particular riff and that particular we, song. We changed it to Ain't It Strange yeah. at my behest, and, and Joe said, Patti Smith has a song called Ain't It Strange, and I said, I, I don't care. It's, 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 it's a, <laughs> because it's a cooler title, let's make it Ain't It Strange. Yeah. All right, so well, let's, let's take a listen. This is Ain't It Strange by Paradox. Dreams. Hey. 
That was Paradox with yeah, baby. Ain't It Strange. <laughs> We've got two of the uh, founders of the band, John Eller and Ben Craig, in the studio with us. You are listening to Blast Beats and Bicycles here at 91.7 FM WMCN, McAllister College Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. John, we were talking a little bit off off air about your songwriting process, and you worked really closely. You mentioned with Joe Joe Garcia. Talk a little bit about how you guys collaborated on songs and how things started to percolate. Yeah, so I met Joe in high school. He was a year ahead of me, and I, I think I was in. It was a choir, choir uh, class that he heard that I was a little Elton John geek, and he defied <laughs> me to play. I can't, remember, I can't remember what song it is. He wanted me to play. You can't songs. play Elton John. Yeah, and I, and I at that time I I was uh, completely a slave to to sheet music. I, I didn't mm-hmm. have the concept of memorizing sure. the chord moves and all that. So I say, well, yeah, I can play, but I, I don't. I can't play without the sheet music. So he kept bugging me, and I said, I don't, I don't know it. So he went out and bought an Elton John book and brought it to class one day. He goes, here, play this. And I did, and kind of blew his mind a little bit, I guess. And so he was writing a lot of, from my perspective at the time, weird poetry. <laughs> and he envisioned that he would be sort of uh, Bernie Taupin to my Elton John if we started writing songs. So he gave me these lyrics, and I never... I was never motivated to write any words, and I wouldn't have known what to write. So he just gave me these. The very first thing he gave me was was uh, surrealist, which I had no idea what on earth that was about. But I, that was my first little song I wrote when I was fifteen hmm. with him, and it ended up being a paradox song. I think it was one of the very first ones we learned. Um, but a lot of credit goes to Joe for for, for continuing to hand me lyrics because again, I when I started writing my my own sort of later post-paradox stuff he certainly was a big influence on tr- trying to have some sort of imagery mm-hmm. that I probably wouldn't have pondered I've hmm. probably written incredibly horrible lyrics that <laughs> Joe. Joe was an incredible person you know he's, he's he's not with us anymore but you know back in the early early 80s he'd be sitting around at parties and he would have been our equivalent to Andy Andy Warhol wow he was that kind of guy very much wearing the rose-colored glasses mm-hmm. wasn't, you know yeah, he, he was just, just visually other and and personality wise yeah he was mm-hmm. Uh, he just seemed more deep than the rest of us. Uh, certainly me at the time, right? Yeah. And it was just very cool and diverse at the time to have somebody like that in our camp. It sounded like he had some gravity around him, like, you know, people would just be drawn to that aura well, he, or that. He drew John Ellerman, you know. Yeah. I think that takes something. That, yeah. You know, for John to be drawn into Joe. And mm-hmm. of course, we're all drawn into John, everybody in the band, mm-hmm. in our entourage, we yeah. traveled with. How many people do we travel with when we did travel? Lots. Eight, lots. At least a minimum of eight people. Wow. You know, we'd have a four-man road crew. Yep. Wow. Just an, and that, that'd be minimum. And Which well, is why we made 50 bucks each. Yeah. And you know what? It really was. We just wanted to get out there and play and hit the road. Yeah. And so, John, when you when you would get this poetry from Joe, how what was the inspiration for the riff or the, you know, the, the chorus? How would you build that around? You know, initially, I, I would probably have... Um, certainly in those days the songs were based around a, a guitar riff and even my writing today is, is often just sparked by a guitar riff and then I go oh yeah I'm going from a 
A to a C sharp minor or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and then coming up with the melody behind it. But I would probably come up with a guitar riff and a break, a vague little chord progression. Then I, then I would just sort through his lyrics and find one that I thought most closely resembled what I was working on at that moment, mm-hmm. and then make it fit. His, his, his lyrics were often not symmetrical. There'd be three lines, then two lines, then five lines. So it also forced me to think outside the box a little bit song structure-wise, which is uh, a pretty cool... Um, that's a great way it to is. start yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, one of the higher challenges, right? Yeah. I mean, and, and it comes through in, in your music. I mean, so many of your songs have that heavy metal riff to it, but at the same time, there's a lot of other influences. I mean, there's some R&B in there. There's some great jazz sort of piano in some of your later stuff. I mean, it seems like you've, you're, you're welcome and open to a bunch of different influences. Well, I mean, again, the new wave of British heavy metal hit me at that moment in time yep. as, as an influence. But prior to that, I was crazy about David Bowie and the mm-hmm. Monkees and the Beatles and, you know, Wings, Paul McCartney and Wings. And all <laughs> those played a role in songs we selected to play, which I would imagine would go into your writing, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we did a... We, that, this was kind of early on. We did a version of um, Love Child by the Supremes. Yes, that's right. And wow. People loved it. And that people loved it. We kind of owned it in our own sort of heavy metalish way. And we actually, we, we did a... Remember, we, we were going to do some demos with... Uh, Des Dickerson. That's right. Hmm. And we were sure. We thought, oh, he's going to dig this. We're doing Love Child. And he was like, yeah, I like the way you guys do Jet. We should record Jet. Yeah. We're like, wow, well, we're just kind of, really? That's, I mean, we're kind of doing it just like Wings, except without the, <laughs> we think Love Child. And he's like, nah, yeah. So I think we started some recordings, but I don't know whatever happened. That was another moment we were on our way. Working with Des Dickerson, remember that? <laughs> yeah, it's it a was big it nineteen ninety nine coming out, and then we go see that. I know I saw that show at first half. So. Wow. Yep, yep, yep. And so, um, what was the reaction to some of the new music when you were on stage? What was the audience reaction to some of your new songs? I mean, as they were coming out for the first time. Um, we had our little posse of yeah, of, of of followers, and the the guys would be kind of headbanging from the side, and the and the girls would be. Dancing on in front of the stage. Yeah, right? it was it was a unique time. <laughs> Y'all know who you are. <laughs> and and so, how long did it take you to get some traction beyond your core fan base? I mean, obviously every band's got their core audience members, but how long did it take you to get that oh. wider recognition? You know, I think we we, we had a, a little bit of a buzz after we did the we played the prom center and we opened for DVC. Oh yes. And I remember, again, we had we had some some followers that were willing to sort of throw down and really fist in the air like like yeah, um, and they they kind of responded more to us than they did ABC. If I, could, I, I know that sounds really cocky and but at the me. time we're young and that's what we're trying to do, <laughs> right? Well, I, I mean, yeah, um, but I, but I think that got got us a little notice and, and got us out to the next level a little bit. Maybe I don't know. Stuff to say. <laughs> I think you know, from eighty to eighty four was a revolving door, and I think I think when Chuck joined the band, I think we everything we'd done before kind of accumulated. Mm-hmm. So when we finally had Chuck in the band for more than a year, yep, people really accepted it. I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, and he was I always think, he was always around and knew yeah. knew the songs yeah. already anyway, and it was. I think eighty four, eighty five, eighty six were probably our the years Your where prime we were really time. the most into it, making the record, mm-hmm. doing that. And by the time the record even came out, we were starting to just lose our our enthusiasm for the going out and playing. Sure, yeah. Right. It's got to be a grind. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be a grind. Well, and we, and we had to, unlike, maybe it's, yeah, I would say unlike now, um, we were expected to play three sets. So wow. we, we, of course, were, for all intents and purposes, a cover band. We didn't have three sets of original yeah, we material. had one set of original music yeah you know but we couldn't just do the one set right so it was a different time and i think that but, that didn't help our and and, I, and frankly i don't know in in the the circuit we played if we could have gotten away with being you know straight up original music. yeah even some of the more uh 
uh, the bands that made it to the next level, the Dare Forces. And yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that. They, they did covers. You yeah. Yeah. Slave to. Raider, too, was one of those that you was of to. that era that to. played. Yep. Well, the Beatles were doing covers, too. So if you want to yeah. talk about that. <laughs> you guys yeah. are in good company. Man, you just make me realize we're a lot like the <laughs> yeah. Beatles. Yeah. You know what? And I don't think Elvis Presley wrote a single song, but I could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to talk a little bit about your, your stage show, uh, but I also want to get people a chance to hear Morphine because I think from a lyrical perspective, it's one of the most interesting songs that you guys. Yeah, Joe did. wrote that again, Joe. Um, and I think it was just about a, a returning Vietnam vet who uh, struggled, kind of lost himself to addiction, mm-hmm. and, and uh, very topical, actually. Yeah, you know, right, right. Um, and so I took the theme with the the war is over thing with a little drum fill, kind of like a marching. Yeah, my dad always said this was the song that we should have put out, and we would have made it. This, this, this <laughs> never, this was never released until we put this CD reissue That's out right. a couple of years ago. So, yeah, I mean, certainly are people that came to see. Well, us. maybe this one should go out to him. Uh, his memory. This one's from yeah. my dad. All right, yeah. this Love is you, Morphine by Paradox.
That was Morphine by Paradox. You are listening to Blast Beats and Bicycles here at 91.7 FM WMCN, McAllister College Radio in St. Paul, Minnesota. In studio with me today are John Eller and Ben Craig from Paradox. And gentlemen, uh, you guys were kind of known for your stage show. You had a couple of major elements uh, in your stage show. Can you talk a little bit about the uh, sure. the lighting that, system? That, that was <laughs> at, at the... Yeah. Creation and crazy mind of Ron Listener. Did. Lighting and pyro. Lighting and pyro. <laughs> uh, we were big into lighting. And, one of the first ones, I think. So we had we had a chase light logo on a hydraulic lift. It was a garage door opener. But yeah, <laughs> it was a garage door <laughs> opener. Was that what it, was? So it lifted. It lifted the chase lit logo up from the back. Wow. Yeah, and this is on top of a backdrop that we would have. Remember our we huge a bank bank of, of car headlights were, were, were placed 50. in these. <laughs> in each, we had four banks of 50, so we had 200 <laughs> car headlights. They would just blast the audience. And the guys, the, uh, Kevin, uh, Kevin Sprott, our sound guy, he would put on sunglasses. And everybody knew it was coming. <laughs> That's just fantastic. And so... How did you get all that stuff into a club? I mean, some of the clubs you played, like we Ryan's. Had a bus. We had a bus, and we had a four-man road, road crew. Because <laughs> four road crew. You didn't have a choice. Didn't have a choice. And they yeah. built it. Ron would go out to junkyards. They'd get these headlights, and we they'd get pieces of plywood, the four-by-eight pieces of plywood. Yeah, absolutely. Talk about DIY. And I think your dad was involved in making those. He helped some. <laughs> we got Brian Tassler to mention. Oh, Brian, yeah, Brian I know you're, I know you're listening. <laughs> yeah. Ty Brennan. Yeah, those guys would make this stuff (laughs) and then carry it around and then operate it. This is where it was in 1985 or whatever it was. You had to bring, we had to bring our own PA. This was in the days when clubs didn't have PAs. So we had to have, you know, double scoops. Yeah. Mids. Seriously. So you would bring your whole back line along. Yeah, the whole back line. Every band that was trying to do that, that's what you had to do. You had to own your own PA. Thank God for Nirvana for kind of dropping yeah, the atom dr- bomb. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't have to have the wall of marshals back there, right? Yeah, uh, we did have a wall of marshals with Paradox logos. Yeah, remember? Oh, I think they're man. captured in a photo shoot. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, how did you get all that stuff into a place like Ryan's? Oh, that was the best. It was. It looked the best at Ryan's. I bet because it was tiny. It was tiny, right? It was yeah, packed. you guys the just filled the place. Good size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was high up, and the, and that garage door opener logo we spoke of. Yep. That's where it made its inaugural. Is that right? Yeah, it was at Ryan's. Wow. Sure. I remember looking back. That was like home. It was home for everybody. It really it, was. Back in those days, that it was, was a home great for place. For sure, home yeah. For Obsession, I think a little bit. Yeah. They were a little more Minneapolis. But, yeah. But I mean, it was. It was. For, it was the for the bands in that genre, it's a mm-hmm. place to play. Yeah. How many times did you bang your guitar neck on that pole? On that pole. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was drinking a little bit for a couple of years, and so I, I would grind my guitar neck against that pole. Nice. Then, a little yeah, Jimmy really, Page. Really nice. Yeah. Really nice. John was exactly. quite the showman, actually. Yeah, right. Back in the day, John was the premier showman. Right. He still is, but he started early. I mean, it was right. it was a different time. It was a different time. How, <laughs> a different life. It was a different person, really. Yeah. How uh, you, you got you know sort of that early '80s metal vibe visually too? How did you guys develop your your costumes, your your stage? I don't know. I mean, because we, we, uniform. We, we, we're shopping. We're, we're so old that we we, we predate we predated uh, Guns N' Roses and Iron Maiden or not, I mean uh, uh, Motley Crue. Yeah. So those bands that had come out and done that we, weren't around. Umlauts above, above letters and band names didn't exist. Yeah, didn't they? Yeah. Motorhead was the first to do Motorhead, it. Motorhead, yes. Yep. Yes. Uh, anyway, um, we go to, there was a crazy clothing shop in, in Minneapolis. March 4. March 4. We go 4th, there. March 4th. March 4th was just a clothing shop. We'd go there hmm. and do outlandish things. Ladies, ladies. Uh, and we'd wear women's blouses. clothes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well. Everybody yeah, right. Everybody. Twisted Sister, the New York Dolls. Yeah. You know, I, mean, I think uh, there was some eyeliner yeah. involved, too. Yeah. Really? I I'm shocked. So. As an 80s rock band, yeah, and you guys wore eyeliner? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some hairspray? <laughs> Might have been a perm. That's uh, fantastic. Lots of girlfriends. Yeah. Benny. That's a bad man. You you spent some time touring around uh, the upper Midwest. I mean, you yeah, you get, traveling. I think uh, traveling is more the word. Yeah, <laughs> driving, driving is it really a better word for it. touring? Sounds too organized, doesn't it? Yeah, we did a lot of driving. You know, well, setting clubs on we, fire. We, dro- we drove to <laughs> Dallas, for God's sake. We, wow. We drove to Dallas. Nothing in between. Yeah, just I, to do a show I, in the winter. In I, I think we might have wow. got a Des Moines gig on the way back, yeah. but, but we literally drove straight to Dallas for a gig. And we spent a week down there. And, yeah. the, and the club was called Rockabilly's. Wow. wow. 
See, Ben is really good at remembering. And things. I lost my leather coat there. That's why somebody stole Jeez, my You should coat. be, you're like the historian of the band, the Ben. Historian. Well, he, I think that's why John called me. He's like, you know what? I've completely blocked out that whole period of my life. I need you around. <laughs> this is like, I, I heard an interview the other day with Ace Fraley and uh, and Eddie Trunk. You know, Eddie Trunk is a, interviews a lot of uh, metal musicians. And Ace can't remember much. No, and he's like, uh, Eddie, you have to help me write my book because I have no idea <laughs> What to talk about because I don't remember anything. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, I think, I think when you're in the eye of the storm or hurricane or whatever, yeah. it, it is hard to keep track. I bet. It really is. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, it sounds like you guys got a little run ragged on the, uh, on the, on those trips. Yeah. Between yeah. Yeah. Gigs. Yeah. Um, and this was when I, getting towards the end, I think this was our last little demo that we did. We did three songs. This is one of them. And this is when we broke out some piano. I finally, my, my Elton Johnny stuff started to <laughs> yep. infiltrate itself into our metal vision and change things up a little bit. All right, well let's uh, let's take a listen. This is Paradox with Run Me Ragged.
That was Paradox with Run Me Ragged. You are listening to Blast Beats and Bicycles here at 91.7 FM, McAllister College Radio, WMCN in St. Paul, Minnesota. Got John Eller and Ben Craig from Paradox in the studio with us. Gentlemen, uh, that song, I think, John, was your first full-on lyrical experience, right, with Paradox? Yep. Joe actually had given me a lyric for something called Run Me Ragged, and I only liked the title. I I didn't like his lyric, and I thought, I, I, I... decided to come out of my shell. I thought, I'm going to write some words. And so that was my first, my first lyric, barring the title. Uh, but it inspired me to start trying to write my own lyrics. It's, and it's, it's a great, I mean, it, the, with the, the piano in there, I mean, it's just a really yeah, it's fun, fun hearing it now. I, 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 I did a pretty good job. I remember the engineer at the time saying, wow, you kind of sound like Leon Russell, who at the time I, I knew of yeah. Leon Russell, but I didn't know the chops that he possessed. And Good grief! No, I don't sound like Leon <laughs> Russell. That's a high compliment. But <laughs> it's really a it's really a fun song, and that bluesy guitar riff underneath it is yeah. just a really a fun compliment to the to the piano for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was really a, a, an idiot when I was I went to, back to grad school in 1993 and went to New York. Sold all my vinyl because I couldn't take it to a New York apartment. And one of the records I had was Real Life uh-huh. on vinyl. One of my favorites of you, the you, local. You, have you gotten another copy? Uh, just the one that you were kind enough to give me. I don't have a vinyl copy of oh, the, the vinyl record. copy. Yeah, no. I used to get texts from friends. They'd, they'd send me a note. Dude, Paradox EP is going for $30 on eBay right now. Wow. And, and I, I kind of <laughs> chuckle about it, but it's happened more than a few times. And it, yeah. It is hilarious and bizarre to me that, 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 that that's where that record ended up in some sort of little niche yeah. little underground metal collector circle. Well, I don't I, know if the CD ruined the collectability or <laughs> uh, I don't know. You know, hopefully it made it gave it uh, you know, a new and broader audience a well, chance I, to I like listen that to we, it. We got a chance to put it out and, and we lost our, our, our dear buddy and, and brother Tommy Alcides, our drummer passed away a couple of years ago and we were putting this all together as he was clearly on the decline and I really wish we could have gotten it out before he, he passed. I guess in a, in a you know, offbeat legacy, it's like, I think John was inspired to actually complete getting the CD out. I, I was, because it meant of the world to Tommy. It didn't necessarily mean the world to me. I was I, I moved on. I'm not, I'm not a metal guy at all anymore. Yeah. I've told this before. I can listen to this, and it's, 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 it's fun and, and nostalgic, but it, it's not where I am musically. I, I couldn't name a current metal band. I mean, it's not my scene. But Tommy, I knew it would mean the world. I'm so weird. Like, all right, we're going to do it for Tommy. Well, and it's, and, it's, and it's, it's still for Tommy. Yeah, and it's really special, too, because there's some things on there that obviously weren't on the original EP, Lots right? Of stuff. Yeah. yeah. There was only, five, I think, five songs on mm-hmm. the EP, and we padded it with like seven or eight songs. Yeah. So it was nice to do that later stuff that showed where we were progressing, mm-hmm. and where I was headed, or whatever it was. Yeah. It's, it's, it's nice to just have a finalization, put it out there. and Do we have time for one more? Yeah, we're going to play us out, but I want to find out what you guys are doing now musically. What? Uh, tell us what uh, what you got going on musically today. Um, I've had a little original project going for a few years called uh, The Shiny Lights, and we've done a couple little EPs. It's been a few years since we put anything out. We've got a lot in the can, and we, we do gigs occasionally. And then tributes are where it's at, so I'm in a Led Zeppelin tribute called... Zeppo. Zeppo. <laughs> Zeppo, baby. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> I, and, and, and I still hanging tough at 57, hitting those notes that I can't imagine <laughs> wow. why I'm able to hit them. I think I do better Robert Plant now than I did when I was 25. That's um, fantastic. And then also in, in a pretty extensively large musical project called Shabby Road Orchestra, and we're, we're playing the studio year uh, Beatles stuff. So we just had a show a couple weeks ago at the Ice House, and we performed Abbey Road in its entirety. And we wow. Strings and horns and everything it's, it's fun pretty fun and spectacular so tribute stuff original stuff I, I do piano bar at Nye's once a week uh, <laughs> Wednesday nights right Wednesday nights yep. yeah 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 so you're the new Lou right I'm <laughs> <laughs> yes that's exactly what I am a landmark really <laughs> a, new, a landmark yeah. landmine really. <laughs> what about you Ben what are you doing musically well you know what I'm I played bass for 20 years after Paradox, but I'm, I'm actually taking guitar lessons. and From my, who? From John Eller. <laughs> and I have for a few years. My, my wife and I do a, well, we started doing a standing gig in Ireland. We go over there each summer to visit her parents. Fun. And there's a little pub there. And I'm trying to coerce John into coming over there sometimes. It's got to happen. Yeah. Uh, there's a little bar, and the bar is low. So wow. when I'm there, I'm the only American playing, you know, Bob Dylan songs on right. the guitar and yeah. Katie sings and 
That's kind of my thing now. It's Fun. Like I'm playing guitar. That's great. That's great. Well, we're so thrilled that you guys were willing to come out on, on the show today. This has been a Jason, lot of fun. thank you for inviting us. Yeah. yeah. A lot of fun. I'm, I'm glad you've had a good time. Uh, talk us through this last song. We're going to play Captain's Log. Uh, this was a kind of a big later hit at our shows. People people dug this one. Captain's Log. This was a... I have no idea what it's about. This is something Joe... That one, one of the last ones I wrote with Joe. I always thought that this song kind of capsulized the way we would wander. Some people call it touring... We were wandering around the Midwest in a school bus. In a stupor. In a stupor. Okay? And so to me, whenever I played the song, I just felt like I was just floating along in a sea of Midwestern grain in this school bus with a bunch of guys that I really had fun hanging out with. That's fantastic. Well, gentlemen, thanks again for being here. John Eller, Ben Craig from Paradox. This is Captain's Log. Thank you. 
Thank you.